you would, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and wrap up our series on Ecclesiastes this morning. And I'm going to tell you another cat story. I know it's crazy I have all these cat stories for a guy who doesn't really actually like cats, but they just seem to um, emerge at certain moments as the appropriate story to tell. So I'm going to tell you a story about uh, our first stray cat that we adopted. Uh, His name was Chaco and a joy named the cat who's kind of a gray-brownish cat, looked a little like chocolate, so she named him Chaco. And um, Chaco got uh, sick at one point in time, just real lethargic, and so Tristy said, well, you need to take Chaco into the vet. <laughs> Taking a stray cat to the vet, okay. Um, I'll take the cat into the vet. So I, I did, literally, I, took, I put the cat in a box, cardboard box, and I took the cat into the vet. And for those of you who are pet lovers or possibly veterinarians here, you're going to say, this guy's an idiot. Okay. And I get that, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So I just, it was Friday afternoon and I took the cat into the vet and the vet said, "Uh, do you have an appointment? (laughs) Who knew that you had to have an appointment for an animal? I didn't, I didn't know. I said, no, I don't. She said, well, isn't it an emergency? I said, if it's an emergency, does it cost more? And she said, yeah, you could leave the cat here. You know, it's Friday over the weekend and we could check on the cat. I said, well, I tell you what, can I make an appointment? So I made an appointment for Monday. I took Chaco back in. Chaco was still alive on Monday. And, uh, you know, they, they're checking out Chaco. They're doing all that. Call me back. And uh, that said, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the, uh, the person who was scheduling stuff. It was actually the vet called me back. So, well, you know, we think Chaco's pretty sick. We think we, we need to run a a feline leukemia test on Chaco. And I said, well, what's a feline leukemia test going to cost me for my stray cat? And uh, I think it was about, you know, like $85 for feline leukemia test. So, so I said, so if Chaco has feline leukemia, how, how would you treat feline leukemia? And the vet said, well, you can't treat it. I said, so I, I'm paying $85 to find out that my pet has feline leukemia, but there's nothing you can do to treat that. So why would I even need to know that? She said, no, you need to know. You know, I said, actually, no, I don't need to know. I'm okay. I'm okay with that. I don't need to know. I don't need to know. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, you pet lovers are hating me, but I just, I'm like, I don't need to know. And I called Tristy and she's like, oh, I mean, you know, she's, she just loves animals. She's heart's breaking. So, oh, you, well, you know, if Chaco's really sick and dying, you know, ha- have the vet put Chaco down. So, <laughs> Cost money, you know. If the vet puts the, I said I can take care of that. <laughs> and Trish said, "No, you can't take care of that. You know, the kids will find out, and they will be mad at you." And I said, I, "I'm not making this up." I said, "I'll lie." <laughs> she said, "You can't lie to your own children." Well. So I said, then I'll have uh, our neighbor, I'll have Clint. Clint will take care of Chaco. And she goes, no, they'll find out and they'll be mad at Clint. I said, Clint can lie. <laughs> she said, no, Clint can't lie. Clint won't lie. I said, well, I'll take the cat to Grandpa. Grandpa will take care of it. I said, no, then they'll be mad at Grandpa. I said, Grandpa can lie. You know, I mean, I, I got a solution to this. Finally, she says, no, 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 no. So I said, well, I, I'll just bring Chaco back, right? I'll just bring Chaco back. And Chaco did, uh, actually, about a month later, Anna Joy and I were walking out, and, uh, and we looked in the yard, and she, she looked at me and she said, why is Chaco sleeping? Uh, you know, it was a stray cat, but oh, I grieved. 
because I saw my daughter grieving. I was really, really sad about this stray cat. And I, I want to ask you a question. Why do you think that I was tempted to lie to my children other than I've got a character deficiency issue, right? Um, why do you think I was tempted? It's tempting because death is it's a sad thing. It's a painful thing. And I didn't, I just wanted Chaco to disappear. I didn't want them to have to know that Chaco had died or grieve that because death is a, it's a frightening thing. It's a grievous thing. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, death is, is, I would describe it, it's like this dark shadow over everything that Solomon talks about. Because even when he comes to a point where he can optimistically point to something we enjoy on earth, the end of that discussion is, yep, yeah, but then we die, right? It's just this, this thing that's looming over the entire conversation throughout Ecclesiastes. You're, you're going to grow old and you're going to die eventually. And that's kind of where he begins to land uh, this conversation. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, if you read with me in verse 1, he says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. He pictures uh, the process of of aging and the end of life as a storm coming in and things get dark and uh, we we age and it's unpleasant but it's inevitable and then he describes this entire process in a very vivid poetic terms that I kind of want to unpack with you uh, this morning reading in verse three he says in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop the grinding ones stand idle because they are few And those who look through windows grow dim. Uh, Solomon actually uses four different kinds of people. Men, women, uh, wealthy, and workers. In other words, all people are drawn into this metaphor. And this is what the metaphor means. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, the watchmen are the hands and the arms. And as you age, they begin to tremble and shake. They're not as strong as they once were. The mighty men stoop. That's, That's the legs. The legs grow weak. And the body stoops over. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. What do you think that is? That's your teeth. That's your teeth. Your teeth begin to fall out. And they stand idle because there are few. Because in their day, if you lost your teeth, there wasn't much you could do. They didn't have dentures. They didn't have a lot of dental care. All right, so, kids, remember, floss the ones you want to keep, right? There's the, there's the moral of the story. Amen. Let's end. The grinding ones stand idle because they're few. They fall out. And in that generation, there wasn't much you could do about that. You couldn't even eat. Those who look through the windows grow dim. So that's your eyes, right? Your eyes. I remember reading years ago, instead of uh, Moses, his eyes did not grow dim. And I thought, what does that mean? His eyes did not grow dim. Did the color of his eyes change? And then I began to realize uh, what that meant exactly. I remember literally to the day, I was 43 years old, I woke up in the morning, I picked up something to read, and I moved it an inch out. And I was like, oh no. Oh no. Uh, Here we go, right? And I realized, okay, I'm going to have to get glasses. And then I had to get reading glasses, and I had to turn on more light. And my kids will hand things to me, and they'll put it really right here. And it's like, oh, I can't, that makes me nauseous. Turn on the light. All the lights are on, Dad. Stand by the window and read it, right? His eyes did not grow dim. Well, most eyes grow dim. Most eyes grow dim. 
Verse 4, the doors of the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. What are the doors? The doors are the ears. The door is shut and it's difficult to hear. The doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. One will arise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. What he's saying is, it's more difficult to hear, but you're also restless. And so when the birds first chirp in the morning or any soft sound, you wake up and you can't go back to sleep. You really can't hear much during the day in conversation, but any little disturbance will wake you up at night. You're restless. You can't sleep. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Uh, some of you stay after the service uh, in, or in between the services after at 11. And um, you may have seen that uh, kids love to come in and they climb on the stage and they jump off. Right? That's, that's what they do uh, after the service, which I highly encourage. I highly encourage because I feel like if you can't jump and run in church, where can you? And I want this to be a fun place. Come on in. So I encourage them and I, and I watch them jump. They climb to the top and they leap fearlessly. Leap off. Go, you know. And I encourage that. If you're under 21, for, mo- for some of you, I say, no, please don't. Please don't do that. Um, you should be afraid if you're standing here. Don't leap off. That might be the worst thing you could do. But when you're young, you leap and you're fearless. When you grow older, you become a little more cautious and then fearful about high places, about going out. Men are afraid of the high place and terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, that is, the hair grows gray. The grasshopper drags himself along. Movement is slower. Uh, Trissy and I had kids a little bit later in life, and that really motivated me to stay in shape. So I thought, you know, at graduation, I don't want people asking my kids, is that your grandfather? No, that's my dad. Really? (laughs) Looks like your grandfather. He's moving slow. Things move slow. And the caperberry is ineffective. What in the world does that mean? The caperberry was the aphrodisiac of the day. Caperberry, to put it bluntly, was the Viagra of the day. But it doesn't work any longer. Okay, You see this downward progression. That's what he's describing. All of these effects of aging. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him, therefore, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. The silver cord was holding a bowl, and in the bowl was a lamp, and the cord is cut, and so the lamp goes out. The lamp is a picture of life. The water at the cistern can no longer be drawn up because the wheel is broken and the pitcher is broken. Water is a symbol of life. This is the end. And what happens at the end of life? He says, man returns to the dust from which he came. Which is what God had told Adam would happen as a result of the fall. Adam, you were taken from dust. You have an affinity with me because you were made in my image, but you also have an affinity with the earth because you were taken from the earth. And when you die, you will return to the dust. That's where you're going. Turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19. 
He says, for the fate of the sons of men. And he's not talking about fate in philosophical terms. He's talking about fate as the thing that is inevitable in the course of life under the sun. The fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies, dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there's no advantage for man over beast for all his vanity. All go to the same place, all came from dust, and all return to dust. And as he says there at the verse 8 of chapter 12, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What he means is this process is inevitable and there is nothing that you can stop, do to stop it. Remember, that's where we started the book, Hevel, vanity, futility. There's certain things that will happen in life and there's nothing that you can do to arrest that direction. Only God is in control of these things. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that's a frightening thing. Uh, one of the, the uh, quotes that I will often use in uh, a funeral message to kind of drive home the point that we will all have a day like that and we should be prepared for that day is a quote from Shakespeare. He wrote this. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, poverty, and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise compared to what we fear of death. And we need to face that reality and face that potential fear. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there's, there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. What he is saying is this. He's not saying there is no afterlife. What he's saying is that in the afterlife, there is no longer a connection to earth. You're not looking back and having an influence on what happens under the sun, right? And there is no memory of you under the sun. And that's an inevitable outcome or end to life. David wrote the same thing, Psalm chapter 89. He said, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? The answer is no, he cannot. So chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Solomon says that the house of mourning is better. Why? Because everybody's going to go there eventually, so deal with it. He's, Ecclesiastes is all about reality. Live in reality. Face reality because then you can live wisely on this earth. So recall, the big idea of Ecclesiastes is this. Nothing under the sun on this earth in this lifetime can give you enduring meaning and satisfaction. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing. And what Solomon has been doing as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes is he's been destroying all of the idols that we think can give us enduring meaning and satisfaction on earth. So, neither wisdom, nor education, or intelligence, wealth, pleasure, achievements, work, status, rest, or as we saw last week, our governing authorities, nothing, nothing on earth can give you enduring meaning and satisfaction in life. And so now, he will conclude with destroying that final idol, so to speak, of, of long life. Right? That relentless pursuit to, to stay young, to postpone aging, and maybe even avoid death, 
that people chase and chase and chase after. And you know, we're obviously not the first generation that has done so. But just this last week, I read that every year there are 10 million cosmetic surgeries performed in the United States. 10 million absolutely unnecessary surgeries that can't actually make you look younger. And they cannot postpone aging and death. So what is the solution? Well, it's not a new wardrobe and it's not a tummy tuck. (laughs) That's not going to solve the problem. Chapter 12, verse 1, Solomon says this, remember also your creator. Solomon's solution is this, remember, remember. The word in Hebrew is a very vivid word. It means to meditate upon something and then act appropriately. Right? The, the Jews weren't really the, very uh, deeply philosophical in this sense. They didn't just want to sit and think and remember. They were people of action. And so to remember means to, to think about, meditate upon it, and then act appropriately to this truth. Let me illustrate. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. It says, God remembered. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does that mean? Well, Exodus chapter 2. It doesn't mean that God was in heaven, and all of a sudden he thought, oh yeah, there are people down there. I should think about them. No, it means God acted on their behalf, and he went and rescued them from slavery. That's what it meant for God to remember. Numbers chapter 15. The people are commanded, remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So that you may remember to do all the commandments and be holy to your God. What does it mean to remember? It means think about this truth and act appropriately. Remember. Psalm 22. All of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. What does it mean for men and women to remember? It means that they put God at the center of their lives and order all of their activities around who he is, what he has done, and all the wonderful gifts that he gives. But there's an additional meaning to remember, and that is to cause to remember. Meditate upon it and act appropriately, but meditate upon it also and make sure that others remember. Psalm 45 I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Think about it yourself. (laughs) Meditate upon the truth of who God is. Act appropriately and tell everyone else about it as well. That's what it means to remember. And this applies to absolutely every person. Every generation. Remember. Remember. Why is this so important? Well, because we are uh, forgetful by nature. Israel was exhorted. You're going to go into the promised land and you're going to eat of the fruit of the vine, vines that you didn't plant. You're going to have honey and milk and you're going to have figs and you're going to have animals and crops. You're going to have all these wonderful things, really, that God has blessed you with and given to you. And you know what's going to happen? You're just going to forget. You're going to forget the Lord your God. So don't forget. This exhortation is for all of us because we forget. We wake up in the morning and we just start the day. And do we, do we think first about God? Well, no, it's very easy for us just to get going, right? I take a shower, I get dressed, I eat breakfast, I go to work, I'm beginning. And maybe something arrests my attention during the day. And I go, oh, maybe I should bring God into my life, <laughs> right? We forget. More and more, I discover I walk into a room and I say, why am I here? <laughs> get in the car, I begin driving. Okay, wait a second. I'm, it's not just you know, that I'm super forgetful. I'm just really distracted. 
I'm really distracted by all kinds of different things. So Solomon says, here's the solution. Remember. Remember. And he starts with uh, those who are aging or older. Remember your creator in your old age. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in all of them and let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. If a man should live many years, let him rejoice. Let him remember. Francis of Assisi once said, be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through Brother Son, who brings the day. You give light through him. He is beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears likeness. As a modern commentator, Philip Ryken, wrote, Praise God for his goodness of life. Praise him for everything sweet you taste, everything bright you see. That's what Solomon says. Light is pleasant, light is sweet. Hey, praise God. And it seems like he is uh, possibly talking out of both sides of his mouth, right? He says, uh, Let him rejoice in all of these gifts God gives. Let him also remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. I don't think he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying, This is reality. As you age and you look back on your life, there are so many things you can give thanks for. There are also dark days. That's reality. But he says, set your mind and your attention on the gifts God has given and focus on those. Don't pretend that dark days didn't happen, but remember the blessings God has given you in your life. Let them preoccupy your heart and your mind. Chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness. And drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Is life fleeting? Yes. Solomon says, sure, it's fleeting. So since it's fleeting, be grateful. Be grateful and remember all of the wonderful gifts that God has given. Rejoice, give thanks. The opposite of which is complaining, right? The opposite is complaining. What, what grieves the heart of God and what breaks the heart of God? What even angers the heart of God? Complaining. What, what fills the heart of God when we rejoice and we give thanks? Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, it said, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? And they grumbled. And when we grumble and we complain, we're demonstrating that we're not grateful. And we're not trusting. Children of Israel had been rescued out of slavery. And as they walked through the desert, God gave them food and he gave them water. He gave them all the provisions that they needed. He gave them protection from their enemies all about. But all they could do was grumble. Don't grumble. New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote, Do all things, not some, not most, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The word for grumbling is uh, it's a, a, an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it is. It's gonguzmo in, in Greek. It's like you have marbles in your mouth. Right? right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you, whom you appear as lights in the world because you will really stand out if you don't complain. Right? 
You will really stand out if you don't complain, but instead rejoice and give thanks for all that God has done in your life. And so I want to exhort you, if you are among the generation, that you are beginning to sense how much you are aging. We're all aging, but you're in that generation where you're really sensing it and you're feeling it. I want to exhort you this morning, don't complain about it. Don't complain. Is it true? Is it a reality? Yes. Have there been dark days and will there be dark days ahead? Yes. Don't complain about them. Don't complain about them. Psalm 92 says, They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. Be one of those who inspires us who come behind you. Be that kind of person. For several years, I went every week to the nursing home and I preached. And most people slept through my sermons. (laughs) So don't worry, I'm used to it. But I discovered that there were only two kinds of people in the nursing home. There were grumblers and there were grateful. And there really was no correspondence to their actual life circumstances, whether they were grumbling or grateful. Some folks who had people visiting them every day and they were reasonably healthy and they still had their minds were just grumbling all the time. And then the others who really were, were suffering physically every day and didn't have family and friends coming to visit them were just grateful. They were grateful for absolutely everything. They would sing at the top of their lungs and they would bring their Bibles. They would try to follow along. They were grateful. Grumblers and grateful people. There were only those two kinds of people. That's it. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to become? Just this last week, I went into a coffee shop, and uh, a guy sat down next to me, a little bit uh, older gentleman, came in along with his wife, and uh, I asked him, I said, are you having a good day? Having a good day? How's your day going? And look, I really, I don't make these things up just because I need an illustration. This just happened. This just actually happened last week. So uh, he said to me, when I said, are you having a good day? He said, son, I haven't had a good day in 20 years. When you're my age, you don't have good days. That was, that was the conversation. That was it. Like, I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, Lord, let that not be me. I do, oh, let, I do not want to be that guy. Right? And so I, I projected myself into his situation. I thought, okay, what, what can I do now to prepare myself so that my attitude, my perspective on life, when I get to that point, I am actually grateful. And I looked at his life and I thought to myself, he's having a cup of coffee. I love coffee. He's getting to taste a good cup of coffee. Be grateful. He's having that coffee with his wife. Be grateful. Be grateful. Yes, the almonds have blossomed. The hair is white. And yes, you are stooped over. But you drove here yourself. (laughs) Be grateful. And your mind is active and you are articulate. Be grateful. Be grateful. There's always something that we can be grateful for. There's always something we can be grateful for. Uh, Nan McElroy is sitting in the back, and uh, Nan's mom was in nursing home for many, many years. I've never seen a more grateful woman. Uh, When she passed away, staff from the nursing home came to be at her memorial service because they were influenced so positively by her attitude 
Whenever they served her, she said, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And she suffered for many years, but she was grateful. Remember your creator. As you age, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Chapter 11, verse 9. Solomon writes, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will hold you accountable for all of these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart, put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life, they are fleeting. So in your youth, enjoy your youth. As they always say, youth is wasted on the young. Don't let it be wasted on you. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy this time of strength. I remember uh, when my son started running, I thought, you know, this is great. I can run with him, and I'll probably really be able to pace him and keep up with him. I'll be able to push him, you know, until he's 15, 16. Uh, He turned 13 last year. He's 14 now, going on 15. At 13, if it was anything over 20 yards, I couldn't keep up. He could just go and go and go and go. My daughter goes to dance class, and she dances literally. Sometimes, some days she'll dance for hours, and I'll come home and go, how are you feeling, honey? She goes, I'm a little tired. <laughs> really? Man, I'd need a massage. I'd need the chiropractor. I'd need physical therapy. I'd, man, help me out here. She was going for hours and hours. She said, I'm a little tired. I'm a little sore. And then the next day, good to go. Enjoy that in your youth. Let it not be wasted upon you. You're young and you have strength. You're young and you can make decisions that will affect the course of your life. You can choose in this moment, even today, to serve God for your entire lifetime. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. Do that. You haven't made certain bad decisions that will alter the course of your life. Enjoy that. Give thanks for that. Charles Bridges once wrote, many have remembered too late, none too soon. So whether you're young or whether you're old, this applies to you as well. Remember your creator and live for him all of the remaining days of your life. Remember your creator. In your age, in your youth, remember your creator beyond the sun. Let me read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 2. Solomon said, It is the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous, one for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean. For the man who offers a sacrifice, for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. There is uh, an inevitable consequence. That's what he means by evil here. In all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Solomon was having a bad day, right, when he wrote that. Really bad day. But... The fact of the matter is Solomon did not have all the information that we have. We we know so much more. Solomon's looking at life as it is just under the sun. But what we know is that our God dwells beyond the sun. That is, he's not touched, in a sense, by the circumstances of this earth. And he designed us to live with him forever. And this really is the key to the book of Ecclesiastes, is to look beyond the sun. Look beyond the sun. God dwells beyond the sun. He created us to dwell with him forever. Let me illustrate for you. Luke chapter 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross, a thief on each side. And one thief said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said this, 
Truly I say to you, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. The word's not used a lot in the New Testament, paradise. It's actually a word that's borrowed from Persian. And it's a word that described royal gardens, royal orchards. It was the perfect word because it stood as a symbol for an absolutely perfect environment. And Jesus said this to the thief who was dying on the cross, who had done absolutely nothing to deserve paradise, but simply believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Hanging on the cross, he said, I want to be with you, Jesus. And Jesus said, you will be with me. And you'll be with me in a place that you cannot imagine how perfect it is. It's called paradise. Paradise. The perfect environment. In fact, this is the word that's used to describe the Garden of Eden. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to sight and also good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four rivers. The word that is used in the Septuagint to translate garden is paradise. In other words, God made paradise for man and he made man for paradise and he put the two together. That is what you were designed for. He made you for paradise and he made paradise for you. And that's what God will give to you and restore to you forever and ever and ever. Turn to the book of Revelation with me. Chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, because it is faithful and it is true. Man was made for the garden, and the garden was made for man, because man sinned. Man was separated from that perfect environment. And what God will do for us for all of eternity is he will remove that separation or that alienation, which is described biblically as death. It will be removed forever. So forever, no more alienation between God and man. Remember, in the garden, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. (laughs) They, They were together. But then because of sin, Adam and Eve were cast out. They were separated from God. But notice his description here again, chapter 21, verse 3. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will dwell among them. He will be in them, in their midst, in their very being. No more alienation. A.W. Tozer wrote a wonderful little book years ago. It's called uh, Man, the Dwelling Place of God. And what paradise describes for us is not only is God uh, among us in in our presence, but God is in us. All alienation between God and man removed and removed uh, forever. 
Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, we don't face death with fear as Solomon did, but understand death is actually this promotion into the very presence of the Lord. Another quote that I'll frequently use in memorial services is from uh, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody uh, once said, uh, someday you will read in the papers that uh, D.L. Moody has died. D.L. Moody is no more. He said, don't you believe a word of it? Because in that day, in that moment, I will be more alive than I ever have been. No more alienation, no more separation between God and man. No more alienation between man and creation. Read with me chapter 22 of Revelation verse 1. It says, then he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Remember our description in Genesis, we have a river that is watering the garden. Now we are in paradise in the book of Revelation and there's a river watering paradise, the garden of God again, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life okay, that they'd been separated from and experienced death. Now there is the tree of life. It's bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have the need of light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. They will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. He says there's no more sea because sea was an image of all that was threatening to man. It was dark and it was dangerous. There's no longer light or night because that's an image of separation from God, a lack of life and truth. Instead, it's always bright. It's always day. They don't even need the sun because they have God. They have the presence of God among them. The curse is removed. So you dig into the ground. You don't get thorns and thistles. You get its rich produce, the provision of God. No more separation between man and man. Remember, Adam and Eve, conflict began immediately. And that conflict grew to their children, and one son killed the other son. And then that conflict grew to society, and cultures were separated, and they fought with one another. But as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 9, the government of the son will come, and he will reconcile all peoples to God and all peoples to one another. And they won't need swords and spears any longer. They'll just need to till that fruitful land with one another. No more alienation between man and himself. Certainly there was alienation between Adam and Eve, but even more so, Adam and Eve felt shame. They felt guilt internally. They wrestled. They wanted to blame God. They wanted to blame one another, but they really knew they needed to blame themselves, and they just struggled with shame and guilt. But in the paradise of God, there is no longer tears or mourning or crying or pain or shame or guilt. We're told those former things are not to be remembered any longer, forever. <laughs> Man, people, that is good news. That, that's actually, that's the gospel, right? The gospel is you believe in Jesus Christ, he removes that debt of sin forever, and you have paradise. Okay, you have paradise. And so I cannot more strongly encourage you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, believe in him today. All you have to do is reach out to God and say, God, I believe, thank you. Thank you for removing my debt of sin and thank you for giving me hope. And even when there are dark days here, I have hope forever. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. That's the beauty of the gospel. Remember. If I could ask the the servers to go back and prepare communion for us. And I want to give you a a word from the book of uh, Isaiah. 
Because the great news as we end the book of Ecclesiastes is that all of these wonderful realities will go on forever and ever and ever. They will not end. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 22 says this. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure before me forever. Remember Solomon's, that, that haunting fear, that dark shadow that was over him was that nothing lasts, right? Nothing remains, nothing endures. And what Isaiah tells us is no, the good gifts and the beautiful gifts of God go on forever and ever and ever and ever. They endure forever. And so men and women, I want to encourage you this morning. Uh, communion was actually given to us as a focal point of remembrance. Remember Jesus said, do this as often as you remember me. And to remember means not just bring it to your mind, but act appropriately. Remember me. Right? Remember, remember all the gifts God has given you in your life. Have there been dark days? I'm sure there have for each of you. But remember all of those gifts. Remember the gifts that God will continue to give you in this life. Remember the gifts that will last for eternity. Remember the gift of Jesus Christ. And so as the men's service, if you could uh, pass out the elements, let's just take a few moments and remember all of these gifts. Not complain, but give thanks. And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in paradise and his bond servants will serve him Jesus uh, the night before he was betrayed he took bread he broke it he said this bread is my body it's broken for you do this in remembrance of me let's take the bread together and then he took the cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me father we thank you for all of your wonderful gifts thank you mostly for your son Jesus We pray that we would not be forgetful people, but that we would remember remember your son, remember uh, the daily and momentary gifts that we have. Remember that our life consists not of simply our moments on this earth, but of eternity with you. May, may we not be forgetful people, but instead may we remember. Uh, may we remember all of the blessings in this life. May we remember the blessing of life that lasts forever. And Father, may we be people who make your remembrance known to those around us, particularly those who may not know your son Jesus. I pray that you give us boldness because our hearts are filled with gratitude to share the truth, the love of Jesus Christ, the hope of paradise. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.